0: You're listening to a download from the outdoor station.co.uk
1: Number 560.
0: Hello, and welcome back to The Outdoors Station for another podcast and video interview. Now, I'd like to start this one off by asking you a serious question. Where do you go for good advice? Now, I don't mean Facebook advice where you might pose what appears to be a simple question like, I'm climbing Ben Nevis for the first time. What do I need to get perhaps a 100 or more replies from strangers some of whom may know what they're talking about and probably many that don't advice that could possibly cost you your life now i mean quantifiable technical and experienced advice from people you can rely on a hundred percent those that talk the talk and have walked the walk long before going outdoors was something nice that you put on instagram outdoor gear coach is an exciting and innovative new venture to enable everyone from outdoor fans and instructors to industry professionals to better understand and use outdoor gear and additionally appreciate where it all came from what was invented first and by whom made up probably of some of the best-known names in the outdoor industry, including Mike Parsons, 40-year history in outdoor industry, originator of the Caramore Mountain Marathon and the innovative lightweight OMM brand. Mary Rose, academic in textile innovation, textile historian specialist of 35 years. Alan Hinks, high-altitude climber and the only Britain to complete all 14 8000-metre peaks. Chris Townsend, long-distance hiker, author of 20 outdoors books and TGO gear tester since 1991. Chuck Cookler, MIT engineer and researcher. Marion Parsons, alpinist, Monroeist and first ascents in Russia to her name. These are the key players that go to make up the Outdoor Gear Coach. Now they've recently released a new book entitled Keeping Dry and Staying Warm which covers every aspect of clothing advice and how to use it. I spoke earlier today with Mike to understand more about Outdoor Gear Coach and how it can benefit the novice and the more experienced outdoors user. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us on this rather chilly and cold January afternoon.
1: Well, thank you indeed for doing this. And uh, I'm living here in the Lake District. And when it's, when it's good in Patterdale, it's very, very good. When it's bad, it's awful. But today is <laughs> a super day.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you, have you still got snow on the hills? We have
1: indeed. We, In fact, we have snow on the ground.
0: Fantastic. Okay, lovely. Well, take it steady today because I know you're out driving to to a meeting after this. So, uh, so thanks very much for squeezing us in. This is fabulous. Right now, I've done my introduction onto the the outdoor gear coach and and who's involved. But perhaps you'd just like to give a bit of a background to how it came about, and obviously what the majority of your work is is based upon at the moment.
1: Okay. After Mary and I uh concluded our uh teaching at the university we had a, a, a an innovation course uh that we'll for 10 years and then we also run a uh an annual one day innovation for extremes conference for uh the outdoor brands and the retailers and so on uh, and lots of invited um uh, speakers and uh <clears throat> When we finished all that Mary then said well I've enjoyed working with you very much um what should we do next and so we said well uh, <laughs> we'll continue with our our sort of writing and publishing work so eventually um I was out with a climbing partner when we were down in Borrowdale on a wet day and he decided we would do a climb in the wet and as we, it was an easy climb, but as we proceeded, the name emerged, and as we got to the top, we said, I said, how does outdoor gear coach sound? And he said, that's it, got it. So what we wanted is to be an independent voice using a lot of the historical information that we had and the technical information, because there's no independent voices without, uh, without realizing it, Increasingly now, in mean, the last few years, everything has either a visible or a not so visible or sometimes invisible uh, commercial bias to it.
0: Well, certainly, I think. Uh, you, like me, will see countless questions on social media appearing from people who are out to do something for the first time. They quite fancy doing, going into the outdoors and walking or climbing or or whatever it may be, and they ask the question: "I'm I'm about to climb Scarfell Pike for the first time. What do I need?" Seems to be a very sort of common question, and like you imply, really, there's a lot of different independent people replying with independent and completely um, differing experiences whereas the team that you've got together obviously have got years of very serious experience and can advise people accordingly but are you aiming this to be for the consumer the end consumer or more for the 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 retailer and the manufacturing network so that they understand more about the equipment they're producing and so on
1: We're looking at the, the broad, broad outdoor community, whether it be consumers uh, from anywhere between consumers and brand managers and retailers and so on. At the moment, we have focused on uh, doing a lot of research and getting quite, uh, making sure that we can answer key questions. And in fact, of the 30 or 40 talks uh, I or we've jointly given, including tra- training the BMC technical committee, which they requested, um, we've realized that the key way to go forward is understanding what people um, don't understand. And so at the moment, we're at quite a high technical level. But going forward for the future, we are looking at producing shorter sessions, like half-hour sessions, and so on. And as you can see, we've got, for example, three-minute videos in places, uh, which gives, which can give support to outdoor instructors and so on, outdoor leaders, if they want to give a quick swat up to themselves, so they can inform their their the clients that they're instructing. Well, there's,
0: there's nobody else, as far as I understand it, offering this service or this advice as a body, is there?
1: No, absolutely not. And part of the reason is that um, we have done this out of our own pocket. Mary and I have forked out uh, to get the whole thing uh, set up and going. Uh, you know, it's an absolute uh, uh, passion. Um, so it's only in the last um, uh, six months or so that we've been started been able to start to raise a small amount of revenue by running paid for courses for outdoor leaders these are CPD outdoor leaders are required to do like any professionals whether it's doctors or whatever are required to do CPD continuous uh, continued professional development and so we've locked into that area so that uh, we also have people who are very knowledgeable about how to use products because one of the key things that uh, isn't talked about, whether that's a magazine or whether it's a test of products and so on, you can do all the tests and all the comparisons on various products but at the end of the day it doesn't tell you how to keep dry or keep warm. So.
0: You're you're looking at the complete range of um, the people involved in the outdoor industry, aren't you? You're not just looking at the consumers. You're starting right at the the beginning where we've got product designers that are taking into account the the, the technical fabrics, how the fabrics are then used, the design, the practical aspects of the design, right through to delivering the correct information to the consumer as well. Would I be right in saying that?
1: Yes, well we haven't so far done any training to designers and so on but because of my long standing contacts uh, in the uh, trade because i was formerly uh, curry more than omm um then i still have a direct contact with uh, several key people in the whole industry brands and so on so i can go through to um uh, fabric and uh, garment brand people and ask them direct questions in a way that journalists don't have access to. So I keep myself in touch that way and also all sorts of um, technical publications as well. The, the
0: the book that you that you've launched that you've brought out obviously contains a wealth of information and actually goes back to well uh, everest times i see there's uh, we we have everest here on the on the screen do you want to tell us a bit more about the history that's contained within the book
1: yeah this is part this is the foundation of the passion in fact um uh 20 odd years ago i had a phone call out of the blue from a lady at lancaster university who i'd never met before and she said could i help uh, she'd me given my name and could i help uh, by making myself available for an interview and helping to her to contact uh people of my generation who had retired from the industry and I said yes of course three months later we were emailing uh uh, several times a day so she said uh would you like to be the co-author and I said well uh I haven't written any book before I've only done management memos and she said well don't worry Um, I'm a good editor, and she was, and uh, it became absolutely fascinating because uh, of my contacts in Germany. I used to be the importer for Saléva crampons and so on, and uh, sadly, uh, three months ago, my good old friend Herman Huber, the Mister Saléva, died, and I've written his obituary on the website and so on but he gave me access to the whole of the an understanding of what had happened in Germany and so as Brits we tend not to recognize that (laughs) other countries are good at climbing (laughs) and all of the methodology of climbing really came down through Germany not clothing that was very UK and France yeah and so on, so we have written a full history. And in fact, online, we have a full uh, timeline um, uh, showing when every type of uh, product, gear, garment was first produced alongside company startups, and so on. Yeah. And then later when we were writing the book, we, uh, we were working with uh, Mountain Heritage Trust, and um, the bits came back and they were put on display after Tony Blair had opened the special exhibition showing the Mallory remains and uh, I said oh is there anything else and they said "Well, oh, yes there's there's three more boxes so I had a look and there was three but bo- we unscrewed the boxes and underneath uh, there there was lots of layers of clothing old fabric which had come off his body um interleaved with tissue and as I raised the tissues and looked the original blood of 70 years previously was still there and I thought hmm this is very sad I don't believe the old mythology that these layers were poor and stiff and inadequate and so on at all. So why don't we do something? So I called Mary and say, do you know anybody in the area of putting old textiles and carpets and all sorts of things back together? She said, as a matter of fact, I do. (laughs) And so under the heading of Mountain Heritage Trust, we raised uh, 30,000 pounds um and produced six layers and they were brilliant. As I tried them on, the first as I got to layer three and I tried them on and it was woven silk, which was the equivalent then of course of a of a of a nylon windshell, yeah woven silk over wool over woven of silk and so on. As I started to put them on, I went click, got it. I understand their layers because they're so much more flexible, even more flexible than modern stuff. It was mm. all tailor-made, exactly so his uh, layers fit. So it was brilliant. So that was a foundation for our passion. And we had a a special launch day for uh, those products. Quite amazing. The, 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 there are two sets of those layers. One has been tested to 25,000 feet on Everest. Um, other, uh, And those two layers are stored at uh, the Blaine Centre where Managing Heritage Trust is, is based and they're occasionally loaned out to people who uh, want to display them or something. Shop, for example, run a special display there. Yeah.
0: I remember uh, seeing some of this in the in the uh, outdoors press that uh, you were launching this and and the uh, uh, the sort of revealing you did, uh, but unfortunately I couldn't make it. But I understand from everything that's been reported, it was very light and flexible clothing. It wasn't the impression we have of really thick, heavy duty woollens and so on. The the whole layering system really was a, a well a work of art from from uh, their point of view.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's face it. Uh, there'd been so much experience uh, of uh, polar exploration by the early uh, naval people trying to get across the, across the Northwest uh, Passage, and then having a go at Antarctica, and and so on and so on. So uh, Burberry, which is now a, a, a lo- long since a fashion brand. Burberry had some brilliant um, woven outer textiles, which made excellent uh, uh, windproof, waterproof garments. And those were used by Nansen and Amundsen and everybody all around the world. Yeah. So what, um,
0: in your book, I know you go into great detail onto the busting the three-layer myth, as it were, um, would you like to just talk about the three layer and the seven layer? Because I th-
1: I'm sure people would be interested in hearing about this. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Um, you know, that's quite a long subject because um, maybe that's a subject for uh, uh, another podcast if you were happy to do that. But basically, we looked and said, well, where has this three layer concept come from? Because everybody today has. Uh, rather rather more than three layers. And what we realized going back was it was probably a marketing statement for people who hadn't been outside before. They were saying basically what you need is a first layer, now called a base layer, and you need a woolly pulley in the middle and then something to go over the top. And that was that's a marketing message. These are your three simple needs. But in actual fact, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> or to quote, to quote uh, our colleague, Chris Townsend, well, if that's all you've got, uh, you'll have to make do, but you're going to be rather uncomfortable. But he said, I wear up to seven layers. yeah." And uh, however, they all have to be correctly... Uh, very well and accurately sized in order that they can do to fit over. And (laughs) there's a very interesting comment coming from uh, Chuck in the USA, and he was in store, and he's saying one day, you know, when I see people coming in, suddenly I realize that they're selecting a garment rather than a layer. And for a few minutes I was scratching my head and thinking, what's he talking about? And then the penny dropped. People b- are buying garments without any reference to what they're already wearing. And so, if we look at the words here, um, say performance layering, well, layering is a word used now by the fashion industry. And there's a big, big difference between fashion layering. And performance layering. And so fashion layering sets out to show your layers, and the under layers are showing at the front or showing uh, below your top, and so on and so on. That's something to make things visually interesting. However, you can't can't wear garments like like that, otherwise the wicking uh, performance just uh, uh, will make sure you get very wet. And so uh, the courses we run are now called um, performance layering. And first of all, we have to look at... um, exploring the myths, busting the myths if you like, uh, busting the myths, and we call that myths, marketing and misunderstandings. And then we get people to show people, how, train people how to pick up a garment and understand what's there. And one day I was uh, working with an alpine club group and uh, Sandy Allen, who is an experienced incredibly incredibly experienced IFGM uh, guide and he also was awarded the PLA door for the Mazzino Ridge uh Nanga Traverse um he suddenly looked at me and said you know my I realize I can no longer pick up a garment and understand what it does for me I said wow can I use that as a reference he said sure go ahead and I realized that that was one of the fundamental problems we have, that everybody has, that the garments have changed such a lot and there are such a wide ranging difference in performance. So we've started from the beginning when we do the training. So we show people how to look at what we call the truth label, never mind what the marketing label says on the front. Go inside, and there is a truth label which tells you which polymers are used there that's a legal requirement why they do WTO uh, then we just teach people what what those five key polymers are about and then there's thousands and thousands of different textiles probably millions actually but there's only four different categories and so we teach people to recognize the four different ones and each have a distinct distinctly different uh, function so suddenly you're building up with those you're building up a picture of how to pick up a garment and so on and then we give uh a number we give people show people how to do a number of diy uh, tests like windproofing tests and wicking tests, which you can even at a pinch do in a, do, do in a store with care. <laughs> you can sue it, certainly do it on your existing garments. And that's what we show, uh, um, uh, uh, get people to, de- we, we, we demonstrate those uh, simple DIY tests
0: nice nice so you said there are lots of uh, well 10 i think you've written in your notes such sort of common myths and misunderstandings about uh, staying warm and layering systems do you want to share any of those with us now that people might suddenly go ah all right i understand
1: okay well the first one is about uh, breathability yeah so i always ask people the question okay well what does this mean does it mean Does that mean, do you think, that the fabric is air porous or air permeable? And 75, usually around 75 people with odd exceptions say, well, yeah. But actually, in 95% of all cases, waterproof garments are not air permeable. So that's a first surprise for people. Is that a surprise for you? I'm sure you know that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I was aware of that one, certainly, but uh, <laughs> okay. I was just curious to see which ones you come up with.
1: And so that's a key one, but it also then provokes the thing, well, okay, well, How does this sweat get out then? And so we talk that we come then into the MVTR, moisture vapor transmission rate. Well, the moisture vapor is not transmitted because there are small micro holes. There are micro holes in the membranes that are used, but because of leakage when the garment is soiled then those holes are blocked by a simple compound called hydrophilic polyurethane hydrophilic pu now if we go back uh, uh, 50 years <laughs> in the mid to late 70s there were two inventions one was Tex with their EPTFE, polytetrafluoroethylene, which was microporous, and the other one was produced after a research project by the uh, UK Ministry of Defence because they were wanting a fabric to uh, supersede Ventar, which was invented during the uh, war period for immersion suits, and so. Gore-Tex is a combination of EPTFE and hydrophilic PU. Now, <laughs> that's a surprise for people. Um, so, what happens next? Um, how does it get out? Um, it transmits as a moisture uh, as uh, 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 moisture molecules, but it only goes out through your outer garment when the temperature pressure and humidity level inside the garment is greater than outside the garment it's like an uphill downhill situation yeah water only flows downhill usually anyway <laughs> and that moisture vapor will <laughs> only goes out if there is that difference yeah and as soon as I say that, people go, oh, uh uh-huh. Hmm. That's answering questions for us and verifying probably what we already know, but didn't want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you do about that? Well, there is an answer that um, within the communities of practice, walkers never, almost never use, almost never use a plain, thin, basic windshield. But we think that's probably one of the most important things coming up for the future. And the reason for that is that over the next three years. All of the fabrics, almost all of the fabrics used that we know and well and love, or hate, <laughs> on garments will change. That, that's after 50 years of innovation, there's gonna be a complete seismic change. And that change is being driven by sustainability Recyclability, uh, the uh, tri- 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 trials to eliminate um, effluents which are harmful to the environment, to the air, or to the uh, or to the seas, to the water. Yeah, and also, of course, uh, the big one, which is climate change, which is CO two reduction. Mm. So that emphasizes the crux importance to be able to pick up a garment using our methodology and get a better idea of what it's going to do or not do Mm. (laughs) what you need. And so what is happening now already is that the DWR finish on garments, which is DWR on, on garments is a simple finish. Called a durable water repellency, and that is also there on uh, tent fabrics, Uh, it's on windshells, and so on and so on. But it's on on waterproofs, Um, and that is not exactly a barrier, but it's a first aid to preventing the water penetrating through the interstices in the fabric. But it's also it makes the outer surface of your waterproof jacket soil resistant now soil resistance is something that exists in all furnishings carpets uh, carpets uh, uh, seating and all car seating but that DWR is a fluoro compound right and that is deadly mm. and the last deliveries arrived in uh, this last season that's the last of it so uh, I, what people I, don't realize is that uh, because it's not soil resistant it will get dirtier quicker and they will have to wash and care for the garments much more frequently so, There is also Another answer to help you and that's to wear a windshell more frequently unless it's really raining But what you'll see is I'm sure you notice this most British walkers and so on when They're there with the layers on and as soon as it gets windy they put the waterproof on So they overheat (laughs) There's condensation occurring, and quite a high proportion of complaints to gore are probably because it's condensation and not leakage with the garment. Yeah. Mm, mm. So a good way to go for the future is to save your very expensive and critically important waterproof garment by using a windshell.
0: Yeah, I have to say that uh, when I first picked up a windshell, the first time I'd seen them was almost 20 years ago and uh, it's completely revolutionized uh, our outdoor activities and certainly all of our friends because they couldn't understand the benefits of it until they tried one then realized as you rightly say they're not sweating and overheating with all the layers on thinking okay, that's, that's what great. they need yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, well let's yeah. just change let's just change the topic slightly from from yeah. um the layering to well it's still including the layering um is insulation uh, what would you advise on people now because we're i say it is the coldest week i think of the so far uh, and down insulation is the common one that people refer to as being the best insulation but i think you question that also in the book
1: i don't question down no but i ask the question to people well what is the best insulation and the real key to understanding how to keep uh, uh, um, warm and dry is to understand that the best insulation is air but dry air And so all of the garments that we use and know, which are sort of in the area of being warm garments, are all methods of producing garments, which hold air. So fleece, for example, holds a small amount of air. Base layers hold a very small, much smaller amount of air, but they still hold air because it's a knitted fabric with loops right Um, down insulated garments which have either down or a uh, non-woven textile um, hold even more area and they're quite thick they can be two three four even five centimeters thick according to the type of construction that's there at the moment they are very popular very trendy but people tend to use them as a, a mid-layer and put them on but you will certainly quickly overheat <laughs> and uh, their best use their best use as a top layer and uh, uh, that's something that uh, the climbing community has picked up. If we go back to the late, to the 90s, there was a guy called Mark Twight who wrote uh, a book called Extreme Alpinism. And um, he was very, very critical of garment manufacturers and so on, and saying this this layering thing, this layering method that they propose is ridiculous. You just can't be stopping on a climb and uh (laughs) taking things off so he said look what you have to do is to wear when you are active um you wear just enough to keep you warm or keep you cool yeah and when you stop in other words on a belay uh you put an over jacket on and I was fortunate and perhaps privileged to uh, talk to um, his partner who, who's uh, Andy Parkin who is an artist in Chamonix who was on that very climb with him because they were taking about three hours per pitch on a very difficult uh a uh, very difficult climb but <laughs> Climbing is an an intermittent activity and other activities and other people assume that they are moving continuously. Well, even walking, uh, I would suggest that you need to stop for lunch sometime. (laughs) You can go without. (laughs) You can have a quick drink and people tend to not eat so much and people are in the pub by six thirty. typically mm. in the uk scenarios yeah <laughs> um but um but, but nevertheless um they, they, um they they the situation with uh eating is is critically important yeah and people don't uh, particularly associ- associate eating with keeping warm. Mm. But in actual fact, the a key thing we teach is, um, and I noticed some comments, uh, I've had a look at your website, website and you've got some interesting comments in there as well, okay, which are very relevant. And so about a third of the calories we uh Push down our neck. Um, go to are uh, created into are uh, turned into glycogen, which uh, propels our muscles, and the other two thirds are converted into heat to keep us warm. So the heat is coming from our bodies, uh, and what garments do is merely, merely <laughs> um, retain that in a number of different ways. Yeah. And knowing just how uh, it saves it is a matter not only of the type of textile and the insulation materials, but it's also how you use them, and the construction of the garment, and the neck, and the sleeves, and the cuffs, and everything, and so on, so on. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh,
0: we're, sort of, we're sort of running out of time now. Um, I think you've obviously touched on a, a couple of points here or a variety of points uh, to give people much more indication of exactly how much depth of knowledge is going to be found in the book. Uh, now, people can find out more about you and obviously the outdoor gear coach uh, group and also some of the sort of services you offer or contacts you offer on your website which is outdoorgearcoach.co.uk and uh, if the book has whetted your appetite our discussion on the book Uh, That is available on Amazon, both as a hard or paperback and as a Kindle edition as well. And uh, it is a very interesting and thought provoking read, which if you're keen on improving your performance outdoors and keeping comfortable, then obviously uh, it is a good way to go to, to take that on board. So, so Mike, thank you very much indeed for your time this afternoon. And uh, certainly, the I see the lights sort of changed in the background, so this is starting to get dark where you are, and uh, it's still fairly cold here. Uh, is there anything further you'd just like to quickly add to to the contents and where people can go? And the other question I did want to ask you actually is: Are are you able, or would you like to be contacted by walking groups or mountaineering groups to to give talks? Is is that something else that's in your portfolio? Absolutely.
1: people can contact me uh, through the uh, through the website I sometimes do I do plenty of voluntary talks of about three-quarters of an hour which is enough and so on but the the CPD courses we do are for are for professionals at the moment and those are six hour effectively a day yeah uh, and uh, because those are geared to really properly learning, so that they can, so that those outdoor people or retail staff can pass that on further. Mm. Yeah, mm. but I do talk from time to time on a on a freebie basis yeah, uh, to clubs, and I've given uh, given frequent talks. Yeah, so yeah, please do contact me, and we ha- oh we have a Facebook website. Uh, just look up outdoor gear coach. Yeah and you can ask questions through that
0: excellent well i'll put all the links to everything that we've discussed the book the websites and the facebook page on the show notes so if you miss that during the conversation folks it will be in the show notes so thanks very much indeed for your time mike and look after yourself until next time we chat or stuck on a boat crossing
1: from malague thank you very much indeed bob for this that's most appreciated yeah see you soon (laughs)
0: Well, my thanks to Mike for taking the time to share some of his knowledge and some of the details and things you will find inside the book, Keeping Warm and Staying Dry. Something that is obviously very important at this moment in time, one with the, the cost of electricity and cost of fuel keeping warm and also the practicalities of keeping warm during these winter months. Of course, all the links to everything we discussed will be available in the show notes, so do pop over to theoutdoorstation.co.uk and you'll get links there. And while you're there, please join in our newsletter. I won't bombard you. I will certainly let you know every now and again what has been released. So I hope you found that of interest, folks. As I say, each week I am trying to keep a fairly diverse content range to keep everybody entertained and to also look at their enjoyment of the outdoors from a different angle so until next time folks take care out there stay warm stay dry and bye for now thank you for listening to this podcast to hear or see more from our extensive free library please visit the outdoorsstation.co.uk